Hey folks, Joyce Vance here. Preet is out this week, so on today's episode of Cafe Insider, I'm joined by my friend Michael Dreben. Michael served in the Solicitor General's office for over 30 years, including 24 years as the Deputy Solicitor General in charge of the federal government's criminal docket. He's one of only eight people in the history of the country to have argued over 100 cases in the Supreme Court. We talk about some of the most memorable moments from his many Supreme Court oral arguments, how tough decisions are made in the Solicitor General's office, and what he learned as counselor to special counsel Robert Mueller in the investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. Today, we're sharing a clip from the interview with listeners of Stay Tuned. To hear our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership for just $1 for one month. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. We look forward to having you as a part of the Insider community. I do have a favorite moment of yours during oral argument that I want to ask you about. The case is called Jones, a case about GPS monitoring. You remember Jones, I'm sure. And the government has placed a GPS monitor on a vehicle. What was the issue in Jones and what was the position that you were staking out? So I do remember Jones uh, very well, uh, <laughs> Joyce, and have uh, thought back to this moment many times. The police were investigating Mr. Jones for drug trafficking, and he had a variety of stash houses around the Washington, D.C. area. And the case was built on wiretaps and circumstantial evidence, but they actually wanted to find Jones at a house with drugs. So they obtained a warrant to install a GPS tracker device on the bottom of his car so that they could monitor his movements and swoop in when he went to one of the stash houses. It was very hard to find Mr. Jones when he wasn't monitoring his car. So the warrant actually expired, but the police didn't really pay attention to that. And on day 11, after the 10-day expiration period had lapsed. Mr. Jones went in to visit a mistress, and they had a pretty good idea that he would be there for enough time to install the tracker. So they did. And the evidence was used against him in his prosecution for drug trafficking, and it was sustained by the Court of Appeals. And then we took the case to the Supreme Court to determine whether the Fourth Amendment permitted the installation of a tracking device on cars. And our position was that it was not a search at all because people do not have a privacy expectation in their public movements because the Supreme Court had decided in a number of cases that if you're traveling in a car on the road, anyone can see you. So it's not a private act. And we did not view the underside of a car as a particularly private place. I'll tell one story before we get to the question you asked. I had not been familiar with GPS trackers, and I went over to the FBI to get a briefing on them. And they explained to me how they worked. And then I said, well, where exactly are they put on the car? And I was talking to about six FBI agents, all of whom were wearing white shirts. They were sitting on the other side of the table from me. And when I asked that question, they all folded their arms and leaned way back in their chairs away from me. It was like watching synchronized swimmers. 
And one of them said, uh, where did we put it on the car? That's need to know. And you don't. <laughs> so I, I, I uh, have this case and, and Supreme Court cases often will have two sides to them, very difficult issues for both sides. A question that you really don't have a good answer to, I used to think of as kind of a black hole question. If you vanished into that, you were not likely to come out alive. And in the GPS case, uh, the problem for the government side was if it's not a search, that means that the government could put GPS trackers on everybody's car in the country and monitor them and database it and know where everybody goes at all times. And the reaction that uh, that we got whenever we talked about that theory to non-prosecutors was, that sounds creepy. And when something sounds creepy, it's generally not a great sign. And it's an even worse sign if the justices can imagine that the practice will be used against them. Most justices don't really fear no-knock search warrants executed by uh, SWAT teams to uh, root out drug trafficking activity. But it is very easy for them to imagine that the government might put GPS trackers on their cars. I mean, I have to say, the reason I love this moment is because of the way that you handled it. You handled it so well. I think I would have disappeared into the black hole, right? Literally, and never emerged. I would have just sunk below the floor. But you have a position here, which is that putting GPS monitors on cars really isn't very different from sending agents out to follow people around. And clearly, agents could go in and follow somebody around with some limitations. And before you get to that point, you're having what I thought was a very pleasant back and forth with Justice Scalia, and suddenly Justice Roberts just inserts himself into the chat, and he says... You think there would also not be a search if you put a GPS device on all of our cars, monitored our movements for a month? You think you're entitled to do that under your theory? Uh, The justices of this court? Yes. Under our theory and under this court's cases, the justices of this court, when driving on public roadways, have no greater expectation. So your answer is yes. You could, tomorrow, decide that you put a GPS device on every one of our cars, follow us for a month, no problem under the Constitution. Well, equally— Did you think you might have a problem with the outcome in Jones at that point? Yes, that, that was the black hole question, and <laughs> I fell into it, and we did not recover from uh, that problem. That, that was a unique case in which there are nine justices, and the government lost the case in two separate opinions with coalitions of five justices ruling against us on each theory that we offered. So... The court was there striking a blow. And I think this is a good example of court's role and the difficulties that the government has in cases where the technology is changing rapidly and the court is trying to adjust the law to keep up. So all of the cases that we had on our side were very strong, but they were basically pre-digital cases. They were cases where somebody was using very crude technology or a telescope or just following somebody on the road. And the court was, in those cases, not willing to say that police officers couldn't use the same kind of surveillance devices that everybody else uses 
or just their, their naked eyes to make observations. We tried to use those cases to cover advances in technology which allow law enforcement techniques that were unknown to the framers and unknown to police even 20 or 30 years ago. And we tried to follow precedent. That is a very big value in the Solicitor General's office and the way that we would litigate cases and made our arguments that were doctrinally well-grounded. And the court confronting the new reality developed new lines of law. And we were not in a position to advance those lines of authority because they certainly didn't help the government's position in the case. And we weren't in a position to back off from where the case law had gone. So we find ourselves kind of, you know, jumping from the fire into the frying pan on that kind of line of cases. And the the similar high-tech cases that the court had that came after that had the same phenomenon. You know, I think about that a lot, this problem of technology outstripping the law. You get new technology, you're trying to apply precedent in a way that makes sense, and it's not always a good fit. And, and that happens a lot in the context of the internet, where you have situations that have happened for years, not on the internet, and suddenly they're happening on the internet. And the question is whether or not the law can be stretched to that capacity, which leads me to ask whether you have a favorite moment involving rap music at the court. (laughs) I think I may have been the only one to have an exchange with the chief justice in which he quoted Eminem and I recognized the song and was able to uh, respond uh, in in kind. <laughs> okay, wait. Stop right there. You recognize the Eminem song. Had you prepared for that? Did you know it was coming? Yes, this is part of thorough preparation. I, I listened to a lot of rap music in uh, preparing to argue a case called Alanis versus United States. It's a case involving threats. Anthony Alanis fancied himself as an amateur rap artist. He dubbed himself Tone Dougie on uh, his uh, Facebook postings, where what he did mostly was post incredibly bad rap music that uh, was threatening to his wife who was divorcing him. And it, it was pretty gritty and scary stuff. And she had gone to get a protective order against him. And he still kept posting these threats in the guise of rap music. And when an FBI agent came to visit him, he posted another threatening statement directed at her. And his final one where he said he was going to go out with a bang and blow up a kindergarten near him is what got him indicted. So in preparing for this case, the question of what will be taken as a threat and what will not be taken as a threat over Facebook was prominent. And I got a lot of suggestions from people in my office. We're not necessarily the biggest connoisseurs of rap music, but knew a fair amount about it of what about this song? What about that song? And some of the lyrics in rap are pretty close to the edge. And the question was, could they be prosecuted as threats? So I was ready when the the Eminem 
question came along because I had listened to the song and I had a theory about why it was not a threat or wouldn't be taken as a threat in context. And the chief also has his his taste for popular culture. He's quoted Bob Dylan and opinions. And so we were we were ready for each other in that case. Okay, so the chief justice is quoting Eminem lyrics and he's saying, Dada make a nice bed for mommy at the bottom of the lake, which sounds like a threat. And we can talk about that in a sec. But I have this really important question. Was it awkward when the chief justice quoted those lyrics? Did he try to sing them? <laughs> no, I think that, that he spoke them. What about, the, what about the language at pages 54 to 55 of the petitioner's brief? Uh, you know, Dada make a nice med for, bed for mommy at the bottom of the lake, tie a rope around a rock. This is during the context of a domestic dispute uh, uh, between uh, you know, a husband and wife. There goes mama splashing in the water, no more fighting with dad, you know, uh, all that stuff. I'm not sure that anyone has ever performed either as a justice or an advocate in in Supreme Court argument. It's serious business. I mean, the the court, though, frequently breaks into laughter. Usually the justices are the ones that make the jokes. It's pretty hard for an advocate to make a joke and get away with it. The usual advice is don't try unless you are really sure. Some advocates have done it and have gotten some some pretty big laughs. I tried it once and it did work. I could get away with it. It was in a polygraph case and the military had a rule that prohibited the admission of polygraph evidence either by the prosecution or the defense. And Mr. Sheffer was an airman who had tested positive for a controlled substance And his defense was that he had gone to a party and had a piece of pizza and somebody must have sprinkled methamphetamine on the pizza because that's the only way that he possibly could have gotten it into his system. And he passed a polygraph test with that explanation. He was not permitted to introduce it in his trial. And the question that the court had to decide was whether that violated his constitutional right to present a defense. And our basic theory was polygraph evidence is unreliable and the military can conclude that it shouldn't be used. But the big problem in the case was that the Department of Defense has a institute for polygraph studies called DOTPI, and it spends millions upon millions of dollars in administering polygraphs to people in national security investigations and background checks. And the court wanted to know why it would invest so much money in polygraphs if it didn't think that they were reliable enough to constitute evidence in a criminal case. So I said, well, there's a story about a police department in Pennsylvania that had a suspect who was denying complicity in the crime. So they put a colander on his head and they connected it with two wires to a Xerox machine And every time that the suspect gave an answer that they thought was false, they would press a button on the machine and out would pop a copy that said on it, you're lying. (laughs) And the suspect confessed. (laughs) So the court laughed and I said, and so the point of the story is that in the hands of a skillful interrogator, the polygraph machine can be an enormously effective device to elicit the truth. (laughs) 
Normally, I would not have told a story like that, but I thought that it was a good illustration of the point. And afterwards, I got a call from a reporter who said, that is that story true? And I said, well, we had checked it out and we read about it and we called the police department and we asked them and they said that it was true. But since then, I have read of about 30 other police departments that claim to have done the same thing. <laughs> so I, I now have to retract. It's one of those urban legends, right? It's a legend. You know, to your point about humor in oral argument, I found, at least in front of the 11th Circuit, which is a warm, wonderful court to argue in or, or was when, when I was doing it a lot, um, that the only kind of jokes that I could get away with as a litigant were self-deprecating humor. And if I could make a really good joke at my expense, the entire panel would break up and it would change the mood. And it was just worth taking the hit to lighten the load there for a while. It's a good strategy. It, it always worked. There was always a lot to laugh at when I was arguing. But, you know, I think that that's an interesting point because I'm just struggling to imagine, and I haven't listened to the argument in, in Alonis where the chief justice is, is doing this. But at the same point, as you say, there's a moment of levity, but the case stands for a really important principle. We're trying to figure out what's a threat in the context of online activity like Facebook. And I think the argument that you made, your explanation for when a line in a rap song wasn't a threat as opposed to what Mr. Alonis was doing, was a good one. What was the position that you ended up staking out and did the court buy it? We took the view that context matters and with Alanis, his threats were directed in Facebook posts that he knew that his wife and a small circle of people were reading, and it was against the background of an acrimonious divorce and a protection order that he was violating. And that's one context, and it's totally different when you go to see a performer on stage and thousands of people are there, and part of the art form is hyperbole and exaggeration. So there's a difficult line that would have to be drawn between public performances in which it's understood to be theatrical versus more private communications that are imbued with a kind of meaning that flows from the personal context. And the internet makes that very tough because if you put something out on the internet, lots of people who hear it will not understand the context. And that's what the chief justice was trying to elicit from me when he asked that question. If you post something on the internet and your friends will know that it's a joke because you just have that kind of sense of humor, but a reader who stumbles upon the post and has no idea the context will call the police, is it a threat or not a threat? And we did not totally resolve that question. And the court didn't have to in that case, because the only thing that the court did was say that there's no per se liability under federal law for making a threat. You have to have some level of knowledge that there is a threat there, whether it's recklessness with respect to how it would be interpreted or actual knowledge was not resolved in that case. And the Supreme Court, interestingly, has a case this term called Counterman versus Colorado, in which it is going to decide whether the First Amendment requires that a person have some degree of knowledge that his or her words will be taken as threatening before the First Amendment permits their prosecution for an offense. 
So lots of interesting issues that come up in these cases, and they require extensive preparation if you're going to the extremes of listening to rap music, which I don't think I ever anticipated that that's something that you would have to do. But how do you get ready for argument? And do you have any sort of quirky rituals before you go in front of the court? Does it make you nervous? So the process of getting ready for a Supreme Court argument is extremely intense. It really has to be the most important thing in your life for the period leading up to it. Because Thanks for listening. To hear the full episode and access all the insider content, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership for just $1 for one month. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who've chosen to join the Insider community, thank you for supporting our work.